AFF on Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. G'day and welcome to episode 65 of AFF On Air, the podcast that helps you to maximise your frequent flyer points. It's Saturday the 24th of July 2021. Coming up in this episode, I have a quick chat with Sarah Collins from the Qantas Founders Museum in Longreach to find out what's new at the museum. And later, we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the decisions made by people running loyalty programs in an extended interview with loyalty program expert David Feldman from New World Loyalty. Our interview covers a whole range of topics from the pros and cons of different types of frequent flyer program business models and points expiration policies to the thought process behind double status credit offers and how airlines can leverage their loyalty programs to help them get out of the pandemic. If you've ever wondered how loyalty programs work behind the scenes, you definitely won't want to miss this one. Well, it's a jam-packed and a bit of a longer episode than usual this fortnight, so let's get straight into it. First, with a quick look at the major airline and frequent flyer news from the past fortnight. And firstly, the New Zealand government has unfortunately paused the trans-Tasman bubble from midnight last night due to concerns about rising COVID-19 case numbers in Australia. The pause affects travel from all Australian states and territories to New Zealand and will remain in effect for eight weeks. New Zealand citizens, permanent resident and visa holders currently in Australia, as well as Australian citizens who have recently been in New Zealand and left on or after the 6th of April this year, as well as their family members, will still be allowed to return to New Zealand on quarantine-free flights until next Friday the 30th of July. But this excludes anyone who's been in New South Wales in the past 14 days who would still need to enter two weeks of managed isolation and quarantine on arrival back in New Zealand. And at the moment, anyone travelling from Victoria to New Zealand over the next week will need to self-isolate for three days and get a COVID test after arriving back in New Zealand. After the 30th of July, once that's finished next Friday, Qantas and Jetstar will suspend almost all of their trans-Tasman services at least until the 25th of September when the bubble is currently scheduled to resume. Air New Zealand will continue operating but only limited trans-Tasman flights and only to and from Auckland. With various parts of New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia all currently under lockdown, all Australian states and territories have unfortunately also reimposed restrictions on interstate travel. And this has unfortunately prompted Rex to cancel all of its Boeing 737 passenger services starting from Tuesday of this week until at least the start of August, so just under two weeks at this point. This affects Rex's capital city flights between uh, Melbourne and Sydney, Adelaide, Canberra and the Gold Coast, as well as from Sydney to the Gold Coast and Canberra. And Rex has also scaled back services quite significantly to regional destinations affected by the latest lockdowns and travel restrictions. But there is somewhat of a silver lining to the drop in demand for air travel. It's prompted Virgin Australia to significantly reduce its business class fares, with tickets for the front of the plane now available from as low as $199 one way on routes like Brisbane to Rockhampton or Melbourne to Launceston. And that's not even a promotional fare, that's now the regular price. 
This price reduces down even further to about $182 one way for business class with a promo code. And of course, you can head over to Australian Frequent Flyer for a list of the current promo codes. There is a catch, though. With the exception of the routes where Virgin is competing directly with Rex, so those are the ones I mentioned just before, the cheapest business saver fares are now only available when booking at least four weeks in advance. But there is some good news. The other fare category, which is simply called business, is still quite reasonably priced at the moment. The business fares typically are around $50 more than business saver, and they're available right up to the date of departure. They're also fully refundable and earn more velocity status credits. And Qantas Frequent Flyer is now offering triple points on all flight, hotel, holiday and Avis car hire bookings made until Tuesday the 27th of July. To take advantage of this offer, you would need to first register for it on the Qantas website. Qantas has also extended its fly flexible policy, which was due to expire on the 31st of July this month, but uh, it's now been extended to the 28th of February next year. That means until the end of February, you will be able to continue to uh, cancel your Qantas bookings for a credit voucher for any reason with no fees, and there's also unlimited date changes as well. That's what's making news on australianfrequentflyer.com.au this fortnight. You can stay up to date between podcasts by subscribing to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest Frequent Flyer news straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday morning. Turn your bills into business class with the SNP app. Whether it's an ATO bill, rates, utilities, phone, school fees, body corporate or any of the other 60,000 plus bills with a BPAY biller code on it, you can pay it with SNP and earn full frequent flyer points for your credit card spend. You can use your Visa, MasterCard or American Express to pay bills with the SNP app and pay just a 1.5% processing fee including GST. There are no other hidden fees. The 1.5% processing fee even applies for American Express payments. Now that's just 0.05% more than the ATO's card payment surcharge for Amex. And with SNP, you'll earn points on your Amex card at the full everyday spend rate and not the reduced rate that you'd normally get at the tax office. SNP also has some convenient features. You can connect your emails to the SNP app and have your billers automatically added to the app when they arrive in your inbox. You'll then get a handy push notification when your bill's ready for payment. You can pay the bill on the spot, schedule it for later, set up an instalment plan or create a recurring payment. And you can even use Apple Pay or Google Pay. So it's no surprise why SNP has processed more than $150 million worth of bill payments and counting. It really is the easiest and most rewarding way to pay your bills. With tax time in front of us now, there's never been a better time to try SNP. Simply download the free SNP app on your mobile device and enter the code AFF10 on sign up for $10 off your first bill payment. That's SNP with two I's, S-N-I-I-P. Well, regular listeners to the podcast might remember episode 42, where I interviewed Tony Martin, the CEO of the Qantas Founders Museum in Longreach, now back Queensland. Well, I'm back here again this week, and joining me to talk about what's changed in the last year is Sarah Collins, the Project and Product Development Manager at the museum. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. Thank you. So, yeah, since I've been here last time, there's a few new developments. One of them is, um, and I remember last year you just launched the Luminescent Longreach Experience, but you now, or the Luminescent Longreach Light Show, but you now have a full experience as well. 
That's correct, yes. So not only can we host, and we do host nightly shows, uh, we can actually have uh, many, many different versatile um, events. And yeah, it pretty much it's, it's, yeah, you hand us a USB or give us a HDMI cord with uh, any content you want us to project and we can do that. So it's pretty awesome. Oh, so you can project your own custom displays onto you the 747. Can. Yeah, so if you um, wanted to host a corporate, social, cultural, charity event um, or even our own events that we've been running throughout the year have been in this space and it's spectacular. Wow. And I see also on Tuesdays and Thursdays you can come up and watch the sunset um, over above the air park and you get... Like, like snacks and uh, champagne, beer and wine, and then watch the show as well. So you've got that new experience too. Yeah, indeed. So that's called the Upper Deck Sunset Experience. Essentially, what it is, is you spend one hour at the highest public viewing structure in Longreach, which happens to be in our air park. And over the course of the hour, you will experience one of the most magical outback sunsets. And um, yeah, then you will be uh, greeted by guests and there is champagne and charcuterie boards. So it's quite lovely. And we only really do about 10 people up in this space. So very exclusive and then of course it includes the world-class light show luminescent long reach that sounds great and you've also over at your museum got a new exhibit the uh if you've flown Qantas in the last year you've probably seen the new safety video with the um upper deck 747 captain cook lounge and you now have that um replica in your museum we sure do. Yeah, so that's been a pretty awesome new addition to our museum. It was actually opened by Alan Joyce uh, when he visited for that Red Tail to 100 event. So that was very, very special. And yeah, so guests have come in and now they can experience and see what it would have been like to fly first class up in the retro lounge throughout the 70s. So yeah, pretty quite, cool. Quite an experience. How did um, it end up at your museum? Oh, so I actually wasn't on the team who organised all of that, but I do believe that it was through... Um, so Josh Whiteman is um, one of the directors of, of the safety video, and I know they came out here and uh, we're actually featured in that safety video. Yeah. And uh, we pretty much got the Avro out of the centre of the museum, took it out onto Airside. So you'll see at the very beginning of that video, we've got Longreach. And I think that's where the friendship started is we actually, um, yeah, got to know the people putting it all together. And you're also expanding the museum and building a new restaurant. Yeah, so that's sort of into the future, but we're definitely always looking to the future here, seeing yeah. what we can do and develop. And yeah, a big um, new investment that we'd love to see happen is actually, um, yeah, redoing a full multi-purpose catering, restaurant, retail area. And um, that would give us more room to expand the museum and then separate the restaurant from museum. And it's going to look pretty awesome. Mm. Uh, all our fresco dining, airside, and yeah, I think it'll be quite special. Also, then um, gives us the luxury of being able to cater um, yeah, to our events that are here in the, uh, in the air park. Yeah, and obviously last year with COVID, you know, the, it was the 100th um, anniversary of Qantas, so some of the events you had planned got a bit disrupted, but uh, I believe you're putting on some extra events this year to kind of make up for that. Yeah, so we have the luxury um, of the airline turning 100 on the 16th of November. So it was kind of like, oh got through 2020 hit november and then we actually went 
we'll hit the reset button and celebrate it because we're still in the centenary year we're just celebrating rather the fact than turning 100 actually yeah being in our 100th year and so yeah we uh, kicked off the year with red and white gala followed by red tail to 100 and still to come and still on sale if you visit our website is the roaring 20s 1920s gala so that would be out of the heritage listed hangar when's that going to be so that'll be on the 16th of august and i believe that we've got yeah a few spots left so definitely if you are interested jump online see what we've got available or even give us a ring excellent well for an outback museum you know the Qantas founders museum really punches above its weight so you guys do a great job out here and as i've said a few times before on this podcast um if you haven't already come to Longreach, come visit well thanks a lot sarah for joining me it's been a pleasure thanks for being out here and hopefully you enjoyed the show If you've been enjoying this podcast, you may be interested to know that I also host eight webinars per year for AFF's sister website, Frequent Flyer Solutions. Each interactive hour-long online webinar covers a timely topic of interest to frequent flyers and anyone in Australia looking to travel better for less. The next webinar will be held at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday the 27th of July 2021 and the topic will be international travel during COVID-19. If you'd like to attend any Frequent Flyer Solutions webinar, you will need to register in advance. For more information, visit frequentflyer.com.au. On this podcast, we often look at Frequent Flyer and loyalty programs from a consumer's perspective. But what goes on behind the scenes? What's the thinking behind some of the decisions made by the people running loyalty programs? Well, as consumers, we often look at loyalty program policies like the fixed three-year expiration of points or the removal of award charts, or the way that some airlines have responded to COVID-19 and wonder, what were they thinking? Well, joining me today to give us the loyalty program's perspective on things is loyalty program expert David Feldman. Originally from Australia, David now lives in Los Angeles, where he specialises in helping loyalty programs to achieve better results as a consultant for New World Loyalty. He's also the host of the Loyalty Summit and a regular guest on the excellent Loyalty Podcast. Welcome to AFF On Air, David. Hi, Matt. Happy to, happy to join you. So I guess, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the way that frequent flyer points expire. Um, there's different models for the way that points expire. In Australia, for example, with Qantas or Velocity points, uh, points don't expire as long as you maintain some activity in your account. So you know, if you earn or redeem at least one point every 18 months in the case of Qantas or two years in the case of Velocity, American Airlines and British Airways and many other airlines have the same policies. Then you've got programs where miles never expire, like United or Delta or Hawaiian. And you've got uh, what's sometimes known as time stamping on the other end of the spectrum, where all miles expire after a fixed period of maybe three years, um, like with, for example, Singapore Airlines, Emirates or Malaysia Airlines, or with Air New Zealand's after four or five years, um, regardless of the activity in the account. Uh, and then we've also got some sort of in-between, like with Avianca Life Miles, for example, we have to earn at least one mile every 12 months to keep your points alive, but uh, redeeming miles doesn't count towards that. And there's various different variations on that. So I guess, David, could you maybe go through what are the pros and cons of each of the different models for the airlines? Sure. So you've summed it up pretty pretty well in terms of the options. I mean, one of the things that people often overlook is there's another sort of time stamping um, that, that actually people are pretty familiar with. Uh, and that is, you know, when you think about status credits, for example, so let's say you're called sure. a frequent flyer, um, you know, you earn your status credits through your membership year, but they're all going to expire 
at your at the end of your membership year, um, your status credits disappear. You know whether you uh, reached your requalification or the next status level, or you didn't, they disappear. So there's a there's a hard timestamp on those as well. But you know it's sort of not what we usually talk about when we talk about um, timestamping with the the regular currency or the the redeemable points or miles that you can actually use for free flights and things like that, toasters or that kind of stuff. Um, so you've summed it up pretty well. You know, as you say, there's there's activity based, uh, there's time stamped, and there's there's airlines that you know have n- no expiry. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, there's different ways to think about it. I mean, the as Australians, the the model we're most familiar with is the activity based. You know, with Virgin or with Qantas, and that is is that you have a certain period of time, um, and as long as you have some activity um, during that period of time, then your points and your miles are safe and they're not going to disappear. Now, there's some complexities with that because, you know, often family pooling and family transfers um, don't count. Uh, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, Qantas brought in the new rule recently as well where even transfers in from Qantas business rewards uh, into your Qantas frequent flyer account don't reset the clock either. I believe you're correct on that, yeah. I was surprised with that move, to be honest, because I, I at some point – when you start having so many restrictions on what, what sort of activity doesn't count for resetting the clock, it defeats the purpose of having a simple message to members, which is your points won't expire as long as you're showing some activity. And another way to programs think about that is about it's about engagement. The whole point of having an activity-based expiry policy is you want members to remain engaged. Mm. Now, if you have a member, for example, who um, or somebody, they take one flight, they sign up for the program, they get some points or miles, uh, or maybe they even were, you know, they had some level of semi-regular activity and they stopped. For whatever reason, they just, they don't have a credit card, they, they're not flying regularly, they're not shopping with partners regularly, they're not bothering to pull out their Qantas Frequent Flyer card, as an example. You know, at some point, those people they're gone. They're not engaged with the program. They have no brand affinity. They're unlikely to come back anytime soon. Um, those points are sitting on the books, and at some point, Qantas would like to get rid of um, And that's why you have an expiry policy. Um, and that's a very, to me, that's a very legitimate reason to have an expiry policy. And I think nobody is going to really fault Qantas or any other airline for expiring the points of that member when they've shown no you know, not even an excuse to be putting up their hand to the program to say, hey, I'm still here. So in the absence of anything of that, I don't think people have a a moral problem with those points expiring. As as long as the airline warns them that the points are going to expire, though, right? And that is the flip side as well. Exactly. And Qantas doesn't have the best reputation of that. And and we shouldn't pick on Qantas because, you know, they're they're, they're not the best, but they're certainly not the worst if we look at global airlines. But, you know, we've got an Australian audience, so let's just stick with an easy example. Qantas doesn't particularly go out of their way to really warn people, you know, Matt, your, your, your points are going to expire next month. You know, um, here's three things you can do today to keep them alive. Um, but, you know, there might be something that goes out maybe in the member statement or something. There's a one line buried <laughs> down there somewhere. You might have missed it. or you- at the bottom of the, month, of the monthly newsletter that obviously they haven't read because they haven't earned or redeemed a point in the last 17 months. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, 
I'm not in in favor of that. And there's a reason, again, from a program management point of view, there's actually a a really good reason why you should be following the example of some of the better airlines around the world that go out of their way to warn people. You know, like they're short of showing up on the person's front door and knocking the door down to yell at them, your points are going to expire here, do something. Um, But there's a reason you want to do that. And that's because when we look at the data, when we look at all the data of, 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 of members of frequent flyer programs, for example, um, and or you know any loyalty program, but particularly travel loyalty programs, members who previously were engaged, if we can keep them engaged, they are worth so much more after the fact than they are if we let them just expire, have their have their have their points on their miles expire. For mature airlines, uh, airline programs. The breakage rate, which is simply the percentage of, of points or miles that go unredeemed and eventually expire, um, the breakage rate is in the teens. Um, you know, none of, there's none of this 50, 60, 70, 80% breakage. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, we're talking 12, 14, 16% is, is very typical for a mature um, airline frequent flyer program. And the data clearly shows that is much more valuable from a long-term perspective for the airline and for the frequent flyer program. For that member to who might be at 17 months of inactivity, it's much more profitable in the long run to get them to re-engage at that point than to let them have their points expire and walk out the door. And if you think about it, you know, anybody who's familiar with the 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 the, the old um, marketing axiom that, you know, it's Always more. It's always cheaper to retain a customer than it is to go and get a brand new, acquire a brand new one. Yeah. The same thing applies in frequent flyer programs. Yeah. For those who might not be uh, familiar, sorry, with breakage rates, could you maybe just explain what breakage is? Yeah, sure. So breakage is is is, is the industry term, um, but it's very very simple. All it is is the percentage of points or miles that are not going to be redeemed and eventually will expire. Um, and once they expire, then they're they're broken. So the breakage rate is the is as a is expressed as a percentage. So if you have a breakage rate of fifteen percent, what that means is every year fifteen percent of the points and miles in the in the pool um, uh, expire. Why is that important? It's important because until those points are either redeemed or expire, they sit in an airline's liability account. And the airline essentially has promised to provide some kind of future value to those points when they get redeemed. When they're redeemed, obviously, the airline processes them. There's a cost there. Um, When they expire, there's no cost associated at that point. The airline gets to take them off the book. But the, the, the magic is that with modern accounting rules, that liability is actually something called deferred revenue. And, you know, for those not of an accounting mind, it can get a bit complicated, but the easiest way to think about it is when it comes to the airline's accounting internally, um, when there is a redemption or when those points expire, the airline actually gets to recognize revenue on the books. If you think about the headlines and you think about, you know, Qantas Week of Flyers always in the news every 12 months when they release their results, so that, you know, they're profitable to the tunes of, tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, or you read about US airlines being profitable from their airline frequent flyer programs in the billions of dollars. You know, it's because they get to recognize this revenue on the books. And that comes both when redemptions happen and when breakage happens. So, you know, if you're an airline chief financial officer, you know, you want both of those activities to occur. And sometimes it's just easier just to have them broken. 
Yeah, and obviously when someone redeems their points or their miles, there's a, there's a margin on that redemption where the airline gets a little bit of profit, but it's obviously a lot more profitable for the airline if you if the points expire and then that's that pure profit, 100% of the value of the point or the internal value is profit. So I guess there's that trade-off. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. So if you think if you think about it, if the points are worth a hundred dollars, you know, um, and they expire unused, the airline gets to recognise a hundred dollars of, of revenue on the books, and they get to to keep that money. Um, if they are redeemed, for example, for a classic award flight, it might cost twenty or thirty dollars to um, to provide that award flight. The airline still gets to recognise a hundred dollars, but then they have to recognise an expense of twenty or thirty. Um, it's still a very, very, very healthy margin of seventy, eighty percent in many cases. Sure. Um, but hey, if you can take it all, you know why not? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there is there is always this internal conflict with finance teams yeah. about what's the ideal. But from a loyalty manager point of view. You're not really worrying about trying to maximize the, the finance revenue. What you're trying to maximize is the engagement from the member. You want to keep members engaged. Absolutely. So that probably leads us to our next type of expiry, and that's the, the time stamped, uh, as you described. So, yes. you know, and that the example of that, Matt, is let's say that you took a flight in January of this year because, you know, there's lots of flights in Australia in January of this year for you to take. Um, but let's say you took one um, and you earned some points. And if they were timestamped, typically they might be timestamped for, say, say three years. Uh, what that means is that those points or miles, regardless of any activity or inactivity, they will expire three years after you earn them. They're done. Yeah, and this has been really problematic, of course, during COVID-19 because a lot of people, for example, um, it was almost three years ago now when Velocity Frequent Flyer increased the cost of transferring points over to Singapore Airlines Chris Flyer. It happened around the end of 2018. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people transferred points over to Chris Flyer. And they're now, they would be due to expire at the end of this year. Singapore Airlines has now extended them for six months. But still, there's a lot of people with a lot of Chris Flyer miles or also points or miles and other they programs with time stamping. Exactly. They've got these points sitting there. They're going to expire and they can't use them. And, and here's the problem with timestamping. Timestamping was introduced, you know, many years ago when there was this prevailing thought about, look, we need to control costs, you know, and so we're going to give people a chance to use their points, but we want to avoid them hanging onto them forever because we don't want them sitting in the liability forever. But also, if we put a timestamp on of, say, three years, then you can never spend more than three years accruing points. And therefore, the number of people who are actually going to ever earn enough points to build up to those more expensive, you know, um, aspirational redemptions that actually might cost the airline quite a lot to provide, you know, no, hardly anyone's actually going to get there. And this was a mindset for many years ago. The problem with that is that we're in 2021 now and we have the data and the data has evolved and the data is telling us that engagement and keeping members engaged is worth so much more. Timestamping is one of those very archaic things now that, you know, sooner or later needs to go the way of the dodo. Yeah, and a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but there have been a few airlines recently that used to use timestamping. Etihad Airways was one, Cathay Pacific and the Asia Miles was another, which have gone to inactivity-based expiration. And they've kind of recognised how archaic, as you say, timestamping is. Uh, and we've also had some programs that have recently uh, changed their policies, United and Hawaiian are two examples, so that miles never expire at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think overall that that's a good thing for the members of these frequent flyer programs? Look, this is a more interesting discussion. Look, if you're a member and your program says your miles never expire, it's great. 
it's fantastic, right? It's fantastic if for some reason you're not flying for a couple of years or whatever else, you don't have to worry about, oh, you know, I mean, there is nothing worse than somebody who, you know what, I do fly semi-regularly. Maybe it's a couple of times a year. I always fly to see family. But, you know what, I got sick last year, so therefore, you know, then there was COVID, whatever else, and maybe uh, sick next year or I got a sick relative. And you spend a little bit of time suddenly not not flying, and you don't even realize that, oh, my 18 months was up and I lost my lost my points. Um, so not having to worry about that, it's very consumer-friendly. From an accounting perspective, breakage is actually still happening in the background. The airline is still calculating um, the percentage of point, of unredeemed points and miles that are expected to not ever be redeemed. Oh, really? Like because people pass away or just forget about them? Exactly. So ah. there is still a calculation where the airline is making a determination. It's an actuarial calculation where they're determining, you know, what percentage of miles um, will never be redeemed. And for those miles, from an accounting treatment perspective, they're still applying breakage. Now, they're not specifically saying, well, Matt's miles, are, you know, I don't think Matt's ever going to redeem his miles. So we'll, uh, on the accounting team, we'll, you know, we'll apply breakage to his miles, even though technically they're still showing it as account. But Dave's probably going to fly, so we'll leave his. They don't do it like that. It's, 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 you know, it's a percentage of the total miles outstanding in the pool. Sure. Um, so, but that's that's just, that's a bit of an inside baseball thing, you know, and most people aren't concerned about that. From a program manager's perspective, um, having a zero and, 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 and miles will never expire policy um, is a bit more challenging. It's a bit more tricky, and there's there's mixed views on that. And one of the reasons is is because expiry, if you play it right, the threat of expiry can actually be a really powerful motivator to help re-engage what I'm going to call dormant members. So if you think about an airline that has an 18-month expiry policy and somebody is at 15, 16 months, no activity, and if you're not Qantas, if you're an airline that actually is aggressively going out there to try to (laughs) tell that member, do something, do something, do something, Get the credit card, make a redemption, make a booking. You know, um, it can be very, it can be a very powerful mo- motivator to get that member to actually do something because um, a simple behavioral concept of loss aversion. People don't want to lose what they have. Now, why don't you just have zero breakage and never expire members' miles uh, at all? You know, including on from an accounting basis. Well, one of the reasons sometimes breakage can be good. Is because if you imagine for a moment, think about think about somebody who's not a member of your frequent flyer program. Somebody flies on your airline for the first time. Imagine having the ability to give you know uh, ten thousand miles on your very first flight. You know, sign up. You know, sign up and um, sign up. You know, you're on you know, you're on the plane and the flight attendant says sign up today. And if you make a second booking, you get ten thousand miles. Hey, great promotion, right? But the only way you could afford to offer, or the economics would work out to offer a promotion like that, is because you would know that a large percentage or a decent percentage of the people taking up the offer aren't going to end up redeeming in the future. So you can afford to be more generous because you're able to account for breakage in the back end. Um, If you don't have that as a tool, it sometimes limits your ability to be generous to the people that would take advantage of it. So... I don't want to say there's a hard, a hard and fast right and wrong answer on this one, um, but it's a complicated answer in terms of from a program manager's perspective. Yeah, and I guess like 
if there is quite, you know, a, a policy like time stamping or something that's quite consumer unfriendly in terms of the expiration, um, some of those programs that do have the kind of the unfriendly expiration policies also, ha- they're actually really good value programs like Singapore Airlines Chris Flyer comes to mind, mm-hmm. Avianca Miles as well, where the miles expire if you don't earn at least one mile every 12 months. Um, mm-hmm. Although that is an inactivity policy, but quite a strict one, mind you. Whereas programs yes. where the miles don't expire, like United or Delta, have moved in the last few years to not having award charts. So most of the awards have become more expensive. You know, the only reason you're going to remove award charts is because you want the flexibility to be able to charge more than what the award chart would have would have shown. You know, now sometimes there's a bit of PR spin from airlines. It was like, oh, well, sometimes we want to charge less. A little it's bit. It's like, well, that, PR spin. that's. Charging less than an award chart isn't a problem. You can always charge less than an award chart. That's called a special or a promotion or a discount. (laughs) Um, People have been dealing with that since a market economy was invented a long long time before you and I walked this out. Does that mean that there's no legitimate reasons to remove award charts? Can a program work and still, once the dust settles, provide reasonable value? The answer, of course, of, of course it can. Of course it can. It's not. Is it the absolute end of the world? Let's all tear up our cards and go home. And uh, no, it's not that. Is it ideal? I don't think it is. And and the reason again, it's basic consumer psychology. If people don't know what they're saving up for, if people don't know what the goal is, yeah, they're just not going to bother. They're they're just not going to bother. People don't save just for the sake of saving. Do people, do everyone, does everyone aspire to those aspirational redemptions, such as the first class round the world trip? Um, but they end up redeeming for, you know, for, for economy, uh, economy reward tickets, you know, between Melbourne and Sydney, um, you know, or in the US market, as I always joke, you know, everyone dreams of the beach in Hawaii or flying first class to Paris or Hong Kong, you know, and they end up redeeming for, you know, coach tickets to see grandma in Wichita. Um, that's just the truth of what happens, but that doesn't mean, um, and and this is the trap that some programs fall into is they look at the data and they go, well, everybody just redeems for the, you know, the vast majority are just redeeming for domestic, domestic economy tickets. Um, but that doesn't mean that they weren't aiming for, or being motivated by those, the thought of the dream of those aspirational redemptions. So that's why reward charts are important. Because it helps people to have a target to aim for, even though they're likely to fall short, doesn't mean that you shouldn't be publishing, um, you know, aspirational redemptions at a reasonable level. And I don't mean Qantas anytime um, two million point um, award charts. I don't mean that. Here's a flip side to the argument. The flip side to the argument is: is programs will say, "Hey, look, a number one complaint from members is there's not enough award seats." There's just, you're looking for classic awards or in the US market and some other markets around the world, they call saver awards. There's just not enough of them, especially when people want to travel during school holidays. Mm. Um, we know this. This is a problem. It only gets worse as more people play the frequent flyer game, as there's more credit cards out in the marketplace, that kind of business. Uh, and so program managers are trying to solve a very, very loud pain point. It's one of the number one pain points that comes through all the data all the surveys and uh, all the feedback and all the members they talk to. And so they say, well, you know what? We're always fighting with the revenue management department to get more seats. And there is no easy solution. There's not suddenly just going to be an extra six business class award seats on every flight that's going to be released. It's just not going to happen. So how do we get more award seats out there? And the reason is, and the answer, generally speaking, is revenue management says to the loyalty department, well, you have to pay us more. Right, so increase the prices or make it dynamic pricing, right? 
Exactly. Um, and so program managers feel that they're looking for a solution to the biggest problem, the biggest problem being the scarcity of award seats. And what they want to be able to do is provide more award seats out there. So dynamic redemption pricing, removal of award charts, this all fits into that conversation. Um, do, do, I, do I still think it's the right answer? No, 100% no. I actually think Qantas did reasonably well being a very early um, initiator of, thing, of the, having the, you know, the uh, classic awards on one hand and the dynamically priced anytime awards on the other. Now, I don't think having awards going for one or two or three million points was ever a good idea. Um, there should have been a cap or simply a once it gets to that level, it's no, out of inventory. No. Um, and I've seen people on AFF say, for example, like I've just tried to search for a Qantas award to London or Los Angeles or wherever, and it was mm-hmm. 2 million points. This program is rubbish. And they probably haven't realized that what they're seeing is points plus pay rather than the classic rewards. And they might not know how to look for the classic rewards, but it and, just puts and, people and, off. And, and that's the danger of it. It puts people off. You'd be much better simply not having the availability show. And then people would be like, okay, there was an availability. I'll keep looking. And then they might see an option that's 500,000 points and they go, oh, okay, or I see it's the more expensive option, but at least I can get a seat or I can wait and keep searching and maybe I'll get one for 200,000, but, uh, you know, I may not get it on the dates that I want. Um, I think there are better ways to do it. But the point, Qantas, the point I was making is that Qantas showed it can be done. You can maintain an award chart and you can have dynamic redemption pricing, and the two can coexist very, very well with each other. Um, and the reality is, is when you think about the people who are on AFF, most people on AFF wouldn't be caught dead, you know, being seen to redeem an anytime award, um, especially <laughs> since the demise of marginal any seat awards, right? Um, those don't count. Um, nobody's going to put their hand up and admit that, oh, yeah, I redeemed 2 million points for a flight, right? Um, but the reality is there are some people out there that will, and they're happy about it because they were able to take their stash of Qantas for fly points, and they were able to redeem flights. It's more expensive than they wanted, but they were able to redeem flights for their family to go on vacation, to go on holiday. We touched on dynamic pricing of award tickets. Of course, Air New Zealand Airpoints is an example of a program where basically one airpoint, one airpoint is worth $1. And the price of an award on New Zealand is basically just linked to the ticket price. So if you want to redeem for a $5,000 business class ticket, that's 5,000 air points, which is uh, a lot. And then you've also, we've seen a bit of a trend where many loyalty programs have moved more away, like more to revenue-based models. So for example, where the number of points earned for a flight might be based on the amount of dollars you spend rather than the number of miles flown. Or like, for example, with the US airlines where status, there's now a minimum spend amount in order to earn status. Uh, what do you think about that trend towards revenue-based frequent flyer programs? Yeah. So look, so I mean, when we talk about on the earn, on the earn side of the equation, if we talk, when we talk about points, um, you know, I, I'm agnostic on this. You know, when we think about, if you look at Qantas and you look at Virgin Australia as examples, uh, it's really, it's really easy to see. Now, um, you know, you don't have to be a, a follower of AFF to know that, look, if I take a, an average Melbourne to Sydney flight or a, you know, Melbourne to, to Cairns flight, for example, on Qantas, I'm going to earn X amount of points. If I took that same flight on Virgin Australia, which the fare is probably going to be pretty much whatever the Qantas fare is, less 20 or 30 bucks, um, you know, traditionally speaking, right, um, I'm going to earn roughly around about similar to X frequent flyer points, right? It's, 
it's it's pretty similar, but yet they work on different systems. So the point of my comment is that both systems can work, spend-based or mileage-based or distance-based uh, or zone-based. They can all work if they're calibrated correctly. Sure. Where spend-based falls apart is on ultra-long haul. And that's why, again, Virgin Australia is an example. That's why Virgin Australia on ultra-long haul, when they were flying it, when they were doing it was, yeah. still, was still distance-based. Because yes, it didn't true. make it didn't make sense to fly Sydney to Los Angeles and earn based on spend because you would earn so few frequent flyer points. It wasn't worth your while either joining the program, remaining engaged with the program, or choosing to fly Virgin Australia over a competitor for the sake of earning the frequent flyer points, um, even if you were a generally loyal frequent flyer. Uh, by way of example, a few years ago, I remember I had a uh, I think I might have shared with you, shared this with you one time previously, Matt. But I had a United flight, and I think on a uh, San Francisco to, uh, to Sydney segment, I think I earned a grand total of 137 frequent flyer miles. What? Um, Where were you crediting you know, for, that to? Uh, to United. It really? was earned on United. It was credited to United. Um, but it, look, it was it was simply because of the way they divvied up the fare and they allocated more points to a domestic segment. And but it, but the point is, when I get my frequent flyer statement and I see that I earn 137 frequent flyer points for a San Francisco to Sydney segment, to the average person when they see that, all that means is next time they need to, to do a flight like that, the frequent flyer program, if you know from a points perspective, is not going to influence their purchase decision. Right, which is the whole point of the program. Which is the whole point of the program is to influence the purchase decision. So, uh, again, uh, the, it's a reason why Virgin Australia uh, recognised that that was a problem. So for ultra-long haul, they kept distance. So all of this is to say that it doesn't really matter whether you, uh, whether you award um, you know, points or miles based on span, based on distance, based on the colour of the passenger's hair, as long as the earning, the earning velocity is uh, that it makes sense and that it's reasonable. Sure. But I guess when it comes to earning status, um, if there's a minimum mm. spend requirement rather than just basing it on status credits or elite qualifying miles or whatever it happens to be in the program, isn't it then harder mm. to game the system? With like, You pretty much have to yeah. spend quite a lot of money to get status that way. Yeah. And, and this last year has been really interesting because it's really laid bare the, 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 the failures and faults in that system. Um, so if you think about two extremes, well, well, not two extremes, if you think about two traditional methods, you had the what I'm going to call the legacy US model, which was replicated in many islands around the world, uh, which, of course, was just made no sense at all. But it was basically you would earn a status mile for every mile that you flew, you know, plus bonuses because of status or cabin or what have you. Um, but what that meant was you could be flying on a super, super, super cheap fare you know, on a ultra long haul, again, let's take our city to Los Angeles example, and you'd earn a ton of status points. Now, uh, or, or status miles. That's the whole point of a status run, right? That, <laughs> yes, there's no argument to that. But then you think about somebody like a Qantas or a Virgin Australia, who traditionally had, you know, always had the status credit tables. You know, and if you think about uh, Qantas, especially before Simpler and Fairer, it was very, very simple to understand. You know, um, just look at the Virgin Australia status credit table. That's the easiest example right now. Hmm. You look at it, and it's very easy to, to to understand. The further you fly, you'll earn more. You'll earn more status points, uh, more or more contribution towards uh, status credits towards towards earning your status. Yeah. The more expensive the fare you buy, the more you'll earn. So you know, 
a a business fair is going to earn, on average, for example, four times the status credits as a, a discount economy fair. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I don't think I don't think anybody really questions that. And guess what? You fly business ultra long haul, you're going to earn more status credits than business short haul. You know, an eight hundred dollar uh, business flight between Melbourne and Sydney isn't going to earn you as many status credits as an $8,000 flight between Sydney and Los Angeles in business class. Again, that makes sense to people. Yeah. Um, so the status credit system has always made sense. But if you think about it, that's revenue-based, isn't it? I mean, if the definition of revenue-based is you get rewarded more for spending more, status credit tables work. They reward you for spending more and for flying further. Now, you can say, well, what about that? Why should the distance thing be part of it? And the truth is, depending on the market that you're in, when you're flying premium, typically the longer the flight, in, in many, many cases, the more expensive it is. Now, does that work for an Australian-based airline? Pretty much 100% it does. Did the US airlines see some odd results from these kind of things? Yeah. But they were on the other extreme where there was really no monetary component involved at all. Now, they went all knee-jerk reaction and said, well, we're going to add in an overt spending requirement. You know, And it started off quite low and then it crept up. And I think just before the pandemic, United announced, I think you had to spend 18000 qualifying dollars to, <laughs> to have United 1K, which is their, their top status. Yeah. And and that's before taxes. That's before that's the thing. Oh, that's wow. before yeah. taxes. So really, you're spending about twenty thousand dollars before taxes. It's a ridiculous yeah. amount. I can kind of see why they're doing this because in 2019, like I, I have United Gold status, uh, which which Ooh. I earned in 2019, and I earned about half of the uh, premier qualifying miles that I needed on a quite a cheap Air China business class ticket from Germany to New Zealand and back. I earned probably about 25,000 premier qualifying miles out of the 50,000 I need on a ticket that cost about $1,700, if I remember correctly. Uh, it might have been 700, 1,700 euros, but it was quite cheap for what it was. And if they had have had the system that they have now with the minimum spend for people who live outside the US and the premier qualifying dollars and all that, I would not have earned status on that. So I kind of get it from that perspective. But then again, the fact that I could do that allowed me to game the program, you know, and if I wasn't able to do that, I probably would actually have switched programs away from United and found another program that did allow me to game the program in that way. And look, here's the, here's, here's the truth of the matter, Matt. The number of people that truly actually game the system, the number of people that really, truly maximize the, the program to the limits is infinitesimally small. Well, so are you it saying I'm in the minority? Ridiculously <laughs> Not everyone's as crazy you, as me, huh? <laughs> not everybody is as crazy as you. It, it, it's true, and I appreciate that there's some people in AFA that are even crazier. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that they're not. They're not that crazy. And here's the yeah. other thing that, that's also a, a very big, big, um, big truth in the industry. Many of the folks that will do that kind of behavior are not just exclusively doing that behavior. Basically, it's a case of they might do the status run on the weekend, but during the week, they're actually a legitimate, regular, frequent flyer, flying in, flying out, buying tickets on the airline every week. Yeah, now, that's fair. Now, are they always buying the most expensive tickets? Sometimes yes, sometimes not. Um, you know, is it also true at the other end of the spec spectrum that those managed corporate tra travelers flying on the company dime um, up the front of the plane week in, week, week out, don't care about status, don't care about frequent flyer miles because they have more than they know what to do with. And the last thing that they want to do on their day off is go anywhere near an airport. <laughs> that is also true. So you do have these extremes. Getting back to the status qualifying dollars, 
or the overt qualifying based on how much you spend. One of the problems with that is that, let's say, Matt, you are a legitimate frequent flyer. You're flying for business every week. You know, you're doing, let's say you're commuting every single week to another city uh, or you have business meetings every single week. Um, by definition, you're a frequent flyer. The, most airlines would say you're a very loyal flyer, the type of customer they want. It's not your fault if this year airfares are less expensive than they were last year. Uh, in the last 12 months, this is what we've seen in many markets in a deflationary fare environment. You actually might have been somebody that was flying right through the pandemic. You never stopped flying. You were one of these people that actually helped keep the airline afloat. But yet, because through no fault of your own, airfares crashed, you're now earning less status contribution because you're you're not spending as much. Even though your behavior hasn't changed, your behavior is still, I'm loyal to this airline and I'm flying them twice a week, every week of the year. Absolutely. And I mean, how, how's someone supposed to maintain 1K with United, for example, in the US if a transcontinental airfare is $49 before tax? Why should somebody be punished for maintaining their behavior or even increasing it? They don't have any control of the, the airfare. And it's ludicrous if you were to say, well, you should just cut, write a check, um, as they still do in the US, um, and make a contribution. You just make a donation to the airline. Uh, no, that's not how the world works. Now, um, I challenged Luke Bonder, who's the head of the Mileage Plus program, um, at the Lolly Summit in December on this. His answer was, was, I mean, you know, he knew the question was coming. <laughs> it was pretty obvious I was going to ask it. But his answer was interesting. And his position was, look, it is what it is. Um, but look, in those kind of environments where fares are out of whack, it's important for the program to make adjustments. You can't just set it and forget it. You have to keep your hands on the lever. You know, and and certainly going into this year, airlines like United have reduced the requalification targets for the year as a result of that. They've acknowledged that people are flying less. They've acknowledged that um, uh, airfares a lot had, had had at least up until then had been lower. You know, and he always reserved the right to make future adjustments as the year went on. And I don't doubt we're going to see adjustments um, between now and the end of the year coming from United amongst others. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess over COVID-19, we touched on this just before, a lot of airlines have um, given either complementary status extensions for 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, mm-hmm. or like in the case of Qantas they've, and Virgin, I think as well, they've said you can book one flight and we'll extend your status for another year. Do you think that airlines should be continuing to do this? So the challenge is that if you've got lucrative uh, frequent flyers, or who previously were very lucrative frequent flyers, I should say, they've been grounded now since March last year. Um, they're not likely at the earliest they're possibly going to get back in the air, you know, sometime in the second half of this year. But if they're international travellers, that may not be till 2022, you know. But even those that might be thinking about starting back up with some flights, you know, shortly, they're all thinking, by the time I actually get flying, three quarters of the year has gone. Even with reduced requalifications, there's no way I'm going to make the, the the goal to requalify. If I don't think that the goal is achievable, behavioral oh psychology God. says I'm not even going to make the effort, which means if I've already reached that conclusion in my mind, I've essentially already checked out of the relationship with the airline. Yeah. I, I'm already... Um, the breakup has already happened. I just haven't told the airline that I'm breaking up yet. If there's flights that you need to take, you'll take them. But 
you aren't going to go out of your way necessarily to stay on your preferred airline if there is a more convenient or a cheaper option elsewhere, uh, you know, to some degree. I mean, if you've still got some benefits right now, you're likely to still maintain them. And a lot of people are thinking the same way. So the risk to the airline is if you put too much stock and energy into trying to maximize the monetization this year, the risk is that you actually get a whole bunch of people that they've already checked out of the relationship with the airline and come beginning of next year, they're free agents. They've already mentally prepared themselves for losing their status and next year they're a free agent. And here's the problem. Once somebody's a free agent, whether now or at the end of the year, they try the alternate airline. The worst case scenario is they have a good experience. Let's say you're an American Airlines flyer and you try and you fly United. Let's say you have a good experience. You might be like, oh, this isn't so bad, you know. Um, maybe I'll do it again next week. And then you do it again next week. And then all of a sudden, because you're a free agent, you can foresee as well airlines are going to be aggressive at trying to poach um, potentially lucrative customers. And before you know it, American has lost what was a lucrative locked-in traveler to the competition who's now a lucrative locked-in traveler over there. Uh, so absolutely. the challenge is how do you strike that balance? Um, and we've seen some interesting uh, – just just last week, uh, we saw an interesting announcement from American Airlines. And American had been really throwing everything at the wall this year. They were selling um, qualifying miles. They had promotions to reduce your um, uh, qualifying spend requirements. Their data was still really disturbing. Their data was still showing that despite all of this, there was going to be a massive cliff fall, you know, a, a huge proportion of the elite base was literally going to fall off the cliff at the end of the year. Um, and that wasn't acceptable to them. So last week they came out with a promotion that basically said, you know, two options. Uh, it was fly $2,000 worth of flights uh, in Q4, basically, uh, or really from September. Um, and you'll maintain whatever your status was at the beginning of the year, um, or simply spend $15,000 on one of our co-brand cards um, between, I think, July and November, I think was it was, um, and you'll maintain whatever your status was at the beginning of the year. For some people who spend $15,000 on a co-brand card, um, maybe that's a lot of money to spend. If you don't live in the US you don't, and you don't have a co-brand card, that's obviously quite difficult to do. Um, if you are stuck in a country like Australia where you can't really travel anywhere, that's going to be difficult to do, um, although flying on partners will count, but still. Um, yeah, so it's not a perfect solution for everybody. But many people looked at that and thought, they were caught a little by surprise and thought, well, that's, that's probably more generous than what was expected. And certainly a lot of people were like, hmm, isn't that maybe a bit early, a bit premature to, to, to be pulling the gun on that? And the thinking at American is really simple. And that is, is yes, they would like to monetize the, the back half of the year. But if they leave it too long before communicating the solution to folks, folks will just check out and be done with it. So I think all eyes in the US market are going to be watching Delta and United yeah. um, to see what they do. Um, and the same pattern is repeating across the world. It's just that depending on the geography you're talking about, every geography is unique based on the local travel restrictions. Yeah, and I do wonder in particular, like with Qantas and the Platinum One status, Platinum One traditionally is very difficult to earn. Most people would be earning Platinum One on the back of long-haul business and first-class fares. Uh, I don't know that Qantas is still going to have any <laughs> Platinum One members, or very few anyway, still around if they don't do something to make it easier to maintain or just extend that status until the borders open up out of Australia. 
Yeah, and, and and look, you've seen the same things. I mean, I mean, I mentioned some examples in the U.S. market, but I mean, you've seen some things, same things with Qantas, you know, and Virgin in terms of you know uh, promotions and initiatives earlier in the year, you know, um, for trying to maintain status and things like that. And I think the reality is, is yes, Qantas will absolutely have to do something, especially when it comes to Platinum One. How they choose to do that, um, with you know, and how publicly they choose to do that is a different is a different story. Um, you know, and, and the Platinum One membership base is small enough that. That you know, you don't necessarily have to go out all guns blazing with big fanfare of on. on that. I'm sure it'll be posted on AFF when it happens. Um, <laughs> uh, but again, this is a membership base that you want to look after. Now, again, local geographies matter, and if you're Qantas and you're thinking about this, you might be thinking, okay, all right, but do I really? Ha- how generous do I have to be with my platinum ones? Because I mean, really, where are they going to go? Uh, I mean, Virgin Australia isn't the Virgin Australia that it used to be. Um, you know, so they're probably thinking, well, for that type of customer, I don't really have to worry about Virgin. Um, or Rex, for that matter. They don't even have a program. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the you know, the international landscape is anybody's guess as to what it actually looks out looks like when we come out the other side of this. So, you know, it, it's hard to tell. But, you know, my guess, if I had to put $10 on it, is the same as yours. And that is Qantas will have to do something. Yeah, and something they've been doing already this year is double status credit offers. They've, they're back. There's been, I think, three with Qantas and at least one mm-hmm. with Virgin, maybe two. I don't remember exactly. There's been so many. Uh, what, what's in it for the airline offering so many double status credit offers? There's two things. Obviously, what you want to do is you want to encourage people to buy airfares today. Like you want, you, you want their money now and you want them to fly in the immediate future. But the other thing that you want is you want them to – you don't want them to lose the habit of being on the hamster wheel, both in terms of engagement with the program, but also habitually flying with your airline. Um, so double status credits does that. If you just blanketly extend people's status, number one, there could be an opportunity cost because they may have been prepared to pull out the credit card and actually spend some money or do some things or jump through some hoops or get on a plane. Um, but also, you know, it, there is a behavioral element there that basically just says if you just give it to them for nothing, then there's a question of the value there. The problem is if Qantas, you know, and same with the other airlines, it's the same dynamic. If Qantas says, well, the only way you're going to do it is we'll make it easier, we'll give you double status credits and we'll, and we'll lower the thresholds, you know, again, if it doesn't get to a point where it's achievable, people just aren't going to bother. And there's a lot of people right now that are just, I can't travel. I can't travel interstate, the borders are closed. I can't travel overseas, there's no flights and I'm not allowed to leave the country. Um, it's even if I wanted to, I can't do it. Um, you know, and it could be, obviously, some people aren't flying because they still have health concerns or, or, or whatever, they're high risk or, or what have you. Um, so there's a lot of all these reasons and it's not just as simple as, come on, get off your backside, get on the plane, buy a couple of tickets and get back to business. Um, which, you know, you could be forgiven domestically in the US to think that there's a little bit of that going on right now. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned before that obviously if you uh, allow people to try out the competitor, they might stay. That's obviously um, something that the airlines don't want. But we have well, we have seen certainly in Australia and elsewhere, there have been a lot of status matches in the last year. Qantas, mm-hmm. Virgin Australia had their status matches around the same time. Qatar Airways last year and Air New Zealand as well had a status match which Australians were eligible for. Um, mm-hmm. I guess what's in it for the airlines in offering a status match? Is it simply to, you know, in, on the off chance that someone from another airline might come over and give them a try and, and like it and stay, or is there more going on there? 
Yeah, look, the, the, the idea, generally speaking, nine out of ten cases, the idea is as simple as it sounds. And the, the airline would like to poach, um, you know, potentially high-value customers and get them to switch across. Um, you know, and legitimately high-value customers aren't going to come across and start at the bottom of the totem pole. It's just not going to happen. Mm. Um, so for those people to come across, you want to give them an incentive. Now, you know, I think the predictions of a proliferation of status matches as we go forward is 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 100% correct. Um, I, I don't put too much stock in the ones that have run over the last 12 months. Um, you know, I, I think in a lot of those cases, it was jumping the gun or just... <laughs> Um, cutters uh, exactly for Qatar to put out a status match in was it May 2020 and I mean Ah, their status is going to be valid until the end of this year Uh, no one can leave the country (laughs) yeah I I mean you know I'm I'm not quite as I'm not being based over here in the US I'm not quite as restricted as you Um, I don't think that I would have got to use that status um, even once before it expired so I know it's it's, that one other than for benefits and quantities of course uh, yes, yeah, that would, which is that not the was, point of the status match. <laughs> which was not the point of the status match. Yeah, look, they hold value. Um, now that said, there's uh, there's a lot of new initiatives and new technology around now. In, you know, in terms of being smarter, uh, if you're an airline, uh, about being smarter with your status match strategy, and I'd, I'd certainly. Uh, you know, to d- d- defer to uh, to somebody like Michael Smith, who's an expert in this field. Um, you know, in, in terms of some of these cutting edge strategies, the airlines should be looking at to, to make sure that they're being smart um, and, and, you know, the money they're investing in these promotions, you know, is giving them a maximum return in terms of the right customers coming across. But the idea remains very simple. If you're an airline, the reason you consider doing this is you want to poach high value customers from the competition and get them locked in. Um, you know, rather than having to fight for them in the in, in the open market, which the whole point of status is to have a lock-in effect. So unless the home airline does something wrong by the customer, generally speaking, a status member is going to be locked in to where they're flying. It's what we call the golden handcuffs. It's there for a reason mm. because you're happy and because you're scared about switching elsewhere because you lose the benefits to which you've become accustomed. Yeah. Well, really interesting, David. Just finally, uh, obviously, you spend a lot of time uh, consulting with loyalty programs and giving them advice on how they can improve their programs. What would be your number one tip for someone who is running a loyalty program at the moment? Put the customer first. Um, <laughs> as, as, simple as, it, as simple as it sounds, so many get it wrong. Um, but it's also just a case of, you know, again, we mentioned earlier, that especially major airline frequent flyer programs are very complicated beasts. You know, you have large teams. Um, internally and you have a lot of internal stakeholders in other departments as well whether it's finance or revenue management or operations or marketing um it's a very very complex basis but the problem with that is is that often because these stakeholders you spend so much time with these other stakeholders and getting them over the line you lose focus on the customer um and ultimately these programs are there to influence customer behavior um and i i, I always say the real currency of any loyalty program um, is its ability uh, to influence customer behavior or to drive changes 
in customer behavior. Uh, you know, and those changes, if you think about it, they typically is you want to acquire a customer. You want them to enroll in your program. You want them to see value in your point-to-miles currency so that they go out of their way to accrue more of it, that they see value in the status benefits that you offer if they're a frequent flyer, um, so that they desire to consolidate all their flying and spend with your brand um, so that they they can, um, you know, take advantage of those benefits. Uh, and I think that the airlines that put the customer first, uh, or any of the loyalty programs, not just airlines, that really have a customer mindset first um, will come out the other side of this crisis much, much stronger uh, with a, a much higher level of affinity amongst their uh, their membership, uh, engagement levels, you know, ultimately profitability. I think the programs that, you know, and, and this is an affliction, particularly in the U.S. with some of the, with the major airlines, is they're so big and there's so much inertia that, you know, they can do really badly by members. Um, and, you know, the books are still going to be okay. Yeah, well, really sound advice. Put the customer first. I mean, it sounds simple. It sounds obvious, but so many <laughs> just forget about that. Well, David, um, if anyone would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, probably best is to reach out to me on uh, on, on LinkedIn, um, and uh, and that's the easiest. Happy to always help. Okay. Well, David Fellman, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating to get some of those inf- insights, and all the best. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate the time. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast. Thanks again to my guests, Sarah Collins and David Fellman, and thank you very much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF on Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you take just a minute to review AFF on Air on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform to receive every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips, and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels. Bye.